Good morning. How, <clears throat> how's everybody? I mean, look, Kip or no Kip, Josh or no Josh, praise team or no praise team, there's a God to be worshipped, and he's going to get some glory somewhere today, right? You remember when uh, people came to Jesus and said, quit having those people cry out Hosanna to you. Jesus said, if they don't, the stones are going to cry out. Like creation, someone's going to praise God today. So Brooks, thanks for stepping in. Praise team, thank you for always being present and giving your time to the crow's nest. Uh, we need the crow's nest every Sunday. I mean, you guys, you guys rock. Thanks for who you are. Uh, happy Valentine's Day to the merry folks in the room. When I'm in conversations with you sometimes, occasionally what we say is there are days where it feels like marriage is the easiest thing in the world, and there are days where marriage can be really difficult. And wherever you are, we pray for you today. Continue to love hard. Know that marriage is not given 50% by each side, it's being fully invested. Yet I also want to welcome all those people here who are not married for whatever reason that may be. I want you to understand that your value and your worth in the kingdom of God is not based on your marital status. And you are welcome here in this church. We honor the marriages that are here today. We pray for them. And for all people, we ask for God to fill our hearts with his love and his kindness. So I'm starting a new series today. There are some words that get lost over time, words that change, words that take on new meaning. There are some words that some of you probably used to use on a regular basis 40, 50, 60 years ago, but they just don't have, like nobody knows what they mean anymore. Some words take on new meaning. 20 plus years ago, apple was a fruit that you could eat to keep a doctor away, right? And today, apple's a device. It's a computer in a similar way. Uh, uh, a Mac these days is a computer. 20, 30 years ago, Mac is something you used to refer to somebody like Mark Taylor. I don't know, you know. Um, backlog used to be a log that you would put at the very back of your fireplace, but it means something today, different today. Uh, boo used to be a word that you would say on Halloween, but now it's a word I refer to my wife, right? No, we... <laughs> no, you see... <clears throat> Maybe not, all right? And we're not even going to go into a word like thong, what it used to mean, right? And, and words, they develop, they, they change, they, they mean something different. There are two words I want to place in front of you today. Two words that maybe we don't use all the time, but two words we cannot lose because they are two words the Bible uses quite a bit. Saints and sinners. I had a friend who preached in Oklahoma for a number of years, and for the first two years he was preaching there, he would stand up in front of his church, and he would say, good morning, saints, and everybody would say, good morning, and he would say, good morning, sinners, and everyone would say, sinners. Years went by, and somebody came up to him and said, man, for all these years, I thought you were saying, good morning, saints, and good morning, sooners. I did not know that you were, that you were calling us sinners, but we're all saints and sinners, right? And you can't, you can't neglect or forget the word saints. It's not a word we use all the time. But it shows up over 70, 70 times in Scripture. And almost every time except one, it is in the plural. It is what God calls, it's what Paul calls, the people of God. That those of you who have been bathed in the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, you are saints. In fact, when Paul writes to churches, he writes to the church of Rome, he, when he writes to the church in Corinth, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, these are people 
who grew up living in some of the most uh, immoral cities around. Who knows what kind of immorality they had been diving in for so much of their life. And then God took hold of their heart and gave them a new reason to live. But when Paul writes to them, look up on the screen. Here are just a few verses. In uh, Romans 1, verse 7, to all God's believed in, uh, beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. 2 Corinthians 1, 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, including all the saints. So he's calling all these believers around them saints. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus. And if you had been someone who so much of your life had been flirting around or had given into lives of immorality, and now you gave your life to Jesus, your past is continuing trying to haunt you of what you used to be. And Paul wants people to know right up front in his letters, hey, you were saints because we need to call people by the right kind of names. We need to call people by how God sees them through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. You're saints of God. But if we uh, redeem and use the word saints, we also have to use and bring back a word that is often forgotten, sin and sinners. In, in some church circles, we have chosen to skip over sin and go straight for grace. There's some circles that they want to highlight grace and kind of dismiss the word sin to the point where some, sometimes what we call sin is we call it struggles or uh, hangups, and we find these other words to use. It's sin. So there are groups that want to focus on grace and not really talk much about sin because, let's face it, grace, it sounds healthy. It's, not, it's less offensive. It's nice. And the Bible does highlight grace a lot. It is a free gift of God. The reason we breathe this morning when we woke up is because the grace of God is real and it's alive in this world. Yet I bet you can also think of some other circles in the world that highlight sin and don't talk about grace almost at all. And even the way they talk about grace is really what they're trying to do is highlight sin. Now, I know people that want preachers and they want us to talk more and more about sin and hell, yet most circles I'm in of people who want to talk more about sin and hell, this isn't all of them, but most people want to talk about sin and hell, not for what sin does in their own life, but they point out what is happening all around them. Because isn't it easier for you to point out the sins in other people than it is for you to deal with your own sin in your life? But the only reason you can know what grace is is if you know what sin is. The only way grace makes sense is for sin to make sense. So abandoning the language of sin doesn't make sin go away. All right, so, so hang on, because I don't want to lose any of you. Uh, I want you to see this morning uh, the first time sin shows up in the New Testament. Because for the next seven weeks, we're going to talk some about sin. And the reason we're, we're going to do this is because I want to offer up some good news to you. So trust me this morning, you may not trust me and that that's okay, all right, we, we, we struggle with trust. I want you to trust me that what I want to do from now leading up to Easter is offer up good news week in and week out of how God has chosen to respond to the sin of the world and pathways God has offered to bring people out of sin. But in order to do that, we've got to acknowledge how sin shows up in Scripture some 760 times and what God does to it. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 is the first mention of sin in the Bible. And it's where God is talking to Joseph. And what he says is, you're going to name this son Jesus. And he is coming to take away the sins of the world. He's coming to deal with the sins of people. He's coming to make way for the forgiveness of sins. 
So the first time sin shows up in the New Testament is not a declaration of how sin ruins you or how sin ruins the world. It is a declaration that Jesus is coming to ruin sin. That Jesus is coming to deal with the sin of the world. So if you see each other in a hallway today or in a Bible class over the next few weeks or you're in a life group or you're text messaging with friends or you're over lunch, I want you to be able to ask someone else, where does sin first show up in the New Testament? And I want you to be able to say it's a declaration of Jesus came to deal sin, this catastrophic blow, dealing with it forever. And we celebrate what Jesus has accomplished. It's the journey we're on as a church. Our mission here is helping people see Jesus. Our vision is that we're about the restoration of God and to restore is to bring, it's to, to bring back to life. So the journey we've even been on this year as a church, uh, uh, six weeks prior to this, we, we led you through Luke 19. Uh, we laid five commitments before you, five commitments that are not about committing to events and not even committing to becoming faithful members of this church, but it's as we are on this pathway of discipleship and wanting to seek after everything it is that God has to offer, here are five commitments we just, we're laying before the church, a commitment to discover, to connect to some kind of smaller group environment where meaningful relationships, where people are diving in the Bible and sharing life together, that we're committing to serving because we want to commit to helping form and shape the body from the head to the toe, not just in the head and not just in the heart, but the whole body investing in the kingdom of God in the world, a commitment to give, and then also a commitment to go, that everywhere we go, there is the light and the salt of God uh, that goes with us. If you didn't get a chance to fill out a commitment card, over 330 of you handed those in last week. We've had over 18 family units place membership and commit to this body in 2016 so far. Um, and, And what God is bringing together and what people are realizing is we are locking arms as brothers and sisters who are building each other up for the sake of the mission of God that's expanding all over this world. And if you want a commitment card, they're laying on these two tables. It takes just a moment to prayerfully go through and fill that out. You can return them at the Connection Center, put them in the baskets at these two tables face down. Our leaders are happy uh, to take those and to pray over it for you. Look in Colossians chapter 2. It's on the screen, and I'm not going to go deep into this, but from this Sunday up to Easter, seven weeks from today, on Colossians, uh, in, on Easter Sunday, what I want to unpack for us and for whatever friends you bring is, second, is Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, where it talks about how Jesus set aside, he erased the record that stood against us with all its legal demands, and he set that aside, nailing it to the cross. In verse 15, it says, he disarmed, or some of your versions, he disabled the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumph, triumphing over them in it. It's this declaration that Jesus has come just to break down sin from head to toe. Everything sin is about, he came to deal with it. And we're going to lead up to that on Easter Sunday. A person once said, all sins are attempts to fill voids. And do you see that as true in your own life? All sin are attempts to fill voids. So just for a moment, I want to help define the word sin for us. Because sin is more than rule-breaking. Uh, words like slip-ups, they're fine and, and struggle. Those are fine words, but we can't lose the word sin. And I want to help make an argument for why we can't. Sin is offense against and rebellion against our Creator. Sin erodes the heart. 
But what I want you to see just for a few moments, there are three different words in the Hebrew for sin. And I want to share these with you. And it's not so that you may think how smart I am because I can throw some Hebrew in front of you. I'm doing this for a reason because I think this will help you get a better grasp for how sin works and how sin is talked about throughout the Bible. And because on the day of judgment, if God asks you a question like, what are the three Hebrew words for sin? I want you to be prepared for it. Look, I don't know how judgment day is going to go down. I mean, I hope for you that one of the first questions God asks isn't, how many of you return shopping buggies after you were at a grocery store to the right place? You know, if so, we are in a lot of trouble. How many of you use your blinker 80% of the time, right? I don't know how it's going down. Here are three words in the Hebrew. The first word is this, chata or kata. And it means to miss the mark. It's a sense of going astray. Uh, and many of you have probably used that definition for sin for a long time, missing the mark. And it's a, it's a good definition. This is the word that shows up more than any other word for sin throughout the Bible, throughout the Hebrew, throughout the Old Testament. It's missing the mark. It's this going astray. This is what David did with Bathsheba. This is what David did to destroy Bathsheba's husband. But I also want to help you see this morning that sin is more than just missing the mark. Sin is more than you aiming for the bullseye, yet you barely miss the bullseye by an inch. Sin is something that erodes the heart and separates us from God. Number two, the second word is ava, and it is to act wrongly. It's a violation of commandments. If you've read in the book of Exodus before, where the people of God have been set free, yet then uh, Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments. And then God says, you need to run back down because all these people that I've set free, they have sinned against me. They have built an idol. Now, one thing you're going to hear me talk about for the next six weeks leading up to Easter, there are times throughout Scripture where sin is focused on the individual. It is what you have done against God. It is what you have done against the will of God. But sin throughout the Bible isn't just something that individuals do. It's something that communities do. There's communal sin. There is systematic sin. The third, th- third word is pasha. And this is to rebel. This is full-fledged revolt. And the, and the place in the Old Testament where this word shows up the most is with the prophets. And the prophets often use this word against the religious people and the wealthy religious people who were not taking care of widows and orphans that they were rebelling against God and what they were doing. And what I want to help you see is all three of these words, if I had to put a definition over them or around them, all three of them get at this. Sin is being out of sync with God. Sin is going against the will of God. And at the very heart of sin, and feel free to write this down, at the very heart of sin, it is not a violation of rules as much as it is a violation of relationship. It's not just you breaking rules. It's you breaking a relationship. So when you take alcohol to the extreme, it's not just that you have crossed a line. It is that you have severed this relationship. You've gone against the will of God. When you uh, begin to gossip, and we can just begin naming sins, it's not just that you broke a rule, and now we need God to forgive us for the rule we broke. It's that we, we need to realize that our sin moves us away from the heart of God. And what I'm saying is this, and over the next few weeks, is that if we want to take Jesus seriously, we've got to take sin seriously. All right, now, 
at this point, I may have already lost a few of you. Because there may be someone in here who's thinking, man, I grew up my whole life and every Sunday all I heard was a preacher stand up and talk about sin and how bad we are and how much God's going to kill us if we don't give our lives to Jesus and God's ready to throw an arrow into our heart. I've heard these sermons before. So for now, from Easter, I don't even know if I want to come back because I don't want to talk about about sin. I want to offer up good news to you. That for us to get real about our sin is something we don't have to fear in the presence of God. Because for you to open up your life to God and want to get real about your sin in the presence of God is the safest place you can do that in because God knows exactly what to do with the sin of your life. He bought it with his blood. He already owns it. But there's a reason why some people are afraid of the language of sin. Some were raised, and maybe some of you were raised in a context where you were, it seemed like you were taught that we could beat the sin out of people if we just tried hard enough. And maybe you've had parents who have tried to do this. I bet some of us have had preachers who have tried to do this. If we can just hit sin like a two-by-four over your head over and over again and talk to you about how bad you are because of, of how, how much you sin, then maybe we'll get to the point where we want to try to just stay in line. Not pursue the heart of God, but just try to keep ourselves in line. Some of you grew up maybe in a context where the primary image of God that was placed in front of you week after week was God who was angry and God who was the judge. God was holding court more than Judge Judy, you know what I'm saying? That God is this judge and he was angry. Always had a, having an arrow ready to throw into your heart. And thank God that Jesus stepped in and took the wrath of God so that we didn't have to deal with the wrath of God. But what I want you to see, and even if you went and you look where God and anger show up in Scripture, it is not a God who is quick to become angry. It's a God who is slow to become angry. Some of you, and even in this room, because I talked with you, you are spiritually battered by the images of God that have been placed in front of you, of a God who is wrathful, a God who is so eager to throw arrows at the sin of the world. Some of us grew up in a context where we were never taught to name sins for ourselves. We were taught to name the sins of others. And then one of the reasons some of us, even today, maybe you're thinking, man, I'm not really sure if I want to enjoy a sermon series about sin is because we, and especially some of the younger folks I hang out with, there's this old regime, and it's not a word I use much up here from the stage, but postmodernity has set in. We live in a postmodern world, meaning that the modern world is gone. Your 1950s isn't coming back. 1960s is not coming back. It's gone. It's gone forever. And for many, there was a time and a place where there was trust and belief in the power of the state and the power of science and even the power of religion where there were more and more people who believed in it and they trusted it. Yet over the last hundred years, the state and nationalism has given us Hitler and we've seen corruption. And then you have scientists given us things like the atom bomb, right? And, and you see how it has been caused for destruction. And then you also have religion that has often given us really bad television programming, right? Uh, and there are good things that have happened in all those areas too. But what I'm getting at is this. My point is this. Humanity is so far from perfect. And one characteristic of postmodernism is that people don't trust old institutions and they don't trust words that used to define old institutions. So to talk about sin and its consequences and what it does sounds too much like the old regime. And here's what Barbara Brown Taylor said. I love this. I put the whole quote on the screen. 
She's a scholar, this theologian. She said, the days are gone when most preachers can stand up in pulpits and name people's sins for them. They do not have that authority anymore. But what they can do, I believe, is to describe the experience of sin and its aftermath so vividly that people can identify its presence in their own lives, not as a chronic source of guilt, nor as sure proof that they are inherently bad, but as the part of their individual and corporate lives that is crying out for change. I like that. Because what I want to place in front of you every week isn't about how bad you are because of your sin, but how good Jesus is. I want you to choose to confess Jesus is the Lord of your life. I want people to choose to be baptized, not so they don't go to hell, but because they want to pursue Jesus. There was a movie years ago called Charade, and there was this scene in this movie where somebody asked this question, why do people lie? And the response in the movie was this, people lie because they want something and fear that the truth will not get it for them. And I think we could replace lie with the word sin and get the same truth. People sin because they want something and they fear that truth and goodness will not get it for them. Why do you think Dr. Phil is so popular? And I'm not talking about our Dr. Phil because you got it going on, man. You got the head, great wife, great family. But why is Dr. Phil so popular? He has been for years. And it's not just because he's from Texas, all right? I think all of us get that. Um, Why is he so popular? And one psychiatrist said this. He's popular because people are ready to be told the truth about themselves, even when it hurts, because they know that without getting the truth, they won't get life. Do you agree with that? Or do we really want the truth about us? Because I'm with people all the time who have chosen to live with guilt instead of engaging in the hard work of new life. Because I wish I could tell you that new life in Jesus and being transformed is easy. It is hard work to let go and to give it all to God. And I see people who settle for the status quo instead of pursuing life that really is new. And I'm with people and I hear stories of folks who are choosing to be chained by their track records, by their past, by their sin, even though God has established everlasting freedom for them. Uh, One way Jesus wants you to view the world is that Jesus becomes this window for you to see what is happening throughout the world. And when Jesus is that window, then how we see the world, how we see sin, how we see friendships, how we see what's happening through the world comes through the lens of Jesus. And there's not a healthier lens for you to put on to view the world than the lens in the window of Jesus. Now, I'm going to beat this drum, and some of you aren't going to like it. I'm going to beat this drum in 2016, because the moment we begin to switch Jesus, uh, the window of Jesus with the window or lens of anything else, and we put Jesus out there, we begin to find our hearts creeping into places of idolatry without even, even knowing it. So in an election year, you cannot put your politics as the window and see Jesus out there. So you can't view Jesus through any other lens. Jesus is the lens. He's the window that you see the world. Because through Jesus, it begins making sense. What is right? What is wrong? How to love? And if anything else becomes that window, then animosity develops in our hearts to other groups and other people, the very people Jesus came to save. But here's what happens in our lives, is what happens when we have this window that is Jesus, 
so that we can see the world for what it really is and how God sees the world? What happens when Jesus begins to turn that window into a mirror? So it's not just you looking out to see the world so it can help make sense. It's this mirror where now there's this reflection. And Jesus isn't just this window in which we see the world. He becomes this mirror wanting us to see ourselves. How often do you look in a mirror and you're like, I didn't know that was there. Casey, if I had this white queso on my chin all day, how long has it been there? And you look at yourself in the mirror and you begin to see who you are. And Jesus sometimes wants us to have this reflection to see what it is that needs to be changed in his presence. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I want to show you just a couple of things that you can take home. Three different times in Ephesians 4, Paul uses a phrase. And it's a phrase, put away. So in verse 21, for surely um, you have heard about Jesus and you were taught through him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust. So the first mention of put away in Ephesians 4, it's this really broad idea. Paul's placing it in front of people that you put away your old self and you pursue a new life. And now he gets a little more specific if you go down to verse 4. So then putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. The only time the word sin is mentioned in the book of Ephesians is in, is in chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry, but don't sin. Anger is in the context, or sin is in the context of anger. Anger is in the context of sin. So you put away falsehood. If you keep looking down in verse 31, Paul, again, in some of your versions, it says get rid, but in mind, in verse 31, put away from you, uh, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You put it away. Because what often happens in our lives is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer calls sin management. That if we're not careful, we try to manage the sin. If we can just keep it within this acre, this parameter, if we can keep it on a nightstand and we don't want it to get out of control because it's a part of our lives and we don't want to fully get rid of it, we just want to help manage it so it doesn't create this fire and, and get out of control. Jesus never calls us to a life of sin management, but to put away, to get rid, allow God to take control of it. C.S. Lewis once said, it is the policy of the devil to persuade us that there is no devil. And what I want us to help understand, what I want to help you understand is Jesus did not die for your earthly pursuits or for national glory or for fat pension plans. He came and he died for sinners. And there are days where the church, it is okay for the church to be like a court where There are times we have to name sin for what it is. There are times where church becomes a clinic where we are here to help heal people back to health. But more than anything, the church is a center of transformation where people are being transformed and touched by God and changed. So there was once a Lebanese Christian who came over and he went to a Christian college over here. And one day he just went off on his classroom. It was a classroom full of Christians who grew up in America, there's this Lebanese Christian in their presence, and he just blew up, and what he said is, all you Americans, all you seem to care about is justification. 
that you want to be justified before God, that God is a wrathful God and you, and you want to acknowledge that Jesus took your place so that you don't have to uh, be buried in your sin. And all you care about is justification. And he said, all I see around me is that you love sinning and being forgiven and then sinning and being forgiven and sinning and being forgiven. And it seems like nobody wants off the hamster wheel. And it just keeps going and going and going. And then he said, have you ever heard of something called sanctification? Where God wants to transform you and make you new. And is anyone interested in learning to sin just a little less? Sin is not a set of behaviors to be avoided. It's a way of life to be changed. And why I think it is so good for us to be able to call sin, sin, is because when we do, there's this radical shift in our thinking. It's a radical shift in perception. Because it's acknowledging that something is wrong, something isn't right. And I'm with enough of you to know that some of you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that you are tired of dealing with this suffocating ache in your life. And that we're ready for a whole new life. And we thank God today that the full faithfulness of Jesus Christ came to this earth and he confronted sin before his death and he destroyed death, by, destroyed sin by his death. And repentance is a return to that relationship. And we have to make choices. We have to make choices to enter into the process of repair. Uh, I have this 24 hours of anxiety any time I take my car into a shop because I take my car in and then I wait to get the phone call of what the cost of repair is going to be. And I wrestle with this because I don't know if it's going to be a $50 expense or a $750 expense. But I also know when I take my car into a shop, I can't just go put Chris Johnson in my car and say, hey, dude, we're going to drive around for 30 minutes because I'm too busy to leave my car alone with you. Can you just get in my car? We're going to drive around, and I need you just to tell me what's wrong. Now, Chris is good enough to buy the sound. He may be able to know what's wrong, but a lot of times it takes time for you to open up a hood and examine and see what's wrong. And as we take time to be with God and open up our hearts to Him, there can be this fear of what's the cost of repair going to be. And what I want for us, or what I don't want, is for you to choose to feel badly about what you have done in your past, but to be so fearful of the estimate of the cost of repair that you choose to live in your guilt instead of pursuing new life with Jesus. So for those who are praying this morning, will you go ahead and get in your spot? We have leaders up front who are here to receive you for prayer. We have people scattered throughout this room who have already been praying over this moment. And your choice to go to one of these people for prayer today, for Sherry or Laura or Fawn, your choice to go to them or to one of our elders it, uh, your, your movement to them is not a declaration that you are stuck and deep in your sin. It may, you may go to them because who knows what kind of prayer blessing you need in your life. We just want to create a space for people to receive a touch of God. And we're going to sing and we're going to sing a couple of songs. And in these songs, there are songs to center our hearts, to place us in this furnace of transformation so God can have his way with us. Can we stand? I want to pray over us before we 
sing. Can we stand? Will you bow your heads? If you're willing or comfortable, feel free to open your hands uh, before the Lord. And God, I begin this prayer in your presence and in the presence of uh, my friends in this room that God, if I've said anything over the last little while that is against your heart, against your purposes, if it was wrong, if it wasn't truthful, May those words fall to the ground, convict my own heart of that. God, may those words bear no fruit, may they not be remembered. But God, if I've spoken any words that are true, may those be words that mess with us throughout this day, that sink deep into our hearts, that establish roots and to bear fruit. God, we open our hearts and our hands to you for we want to acknowledge that as Jesus becomes more and we become less, sin must be pressed out so that there's this void in us that can be filled with the Spirit of God. So however you want to convict us, however you want to lay our hearts bare, we pray for you to have your way with us, and I pray that you send my friends in this room great comfort for them to know that as you tweak and poke and convict that you have your very best interest in mind, which is to create us and shape us more in the image of Jesus Christ. You're a loving God. And we're thank you, thank, we thank you for all you do. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's sing. Breathe.